Hi, this is Mark Griffin, Director of Customer Solutions here at Constructs. We're a team of software engineering experts led by legendary author Steve McConnell. Here we believe every software team can be more successful at delivering high levels of business value. Every episode, we talk with one of our consultants exploring different types of engagements. We describe the issues those engagements are designed to address and how we solve them. And we have a little fun along the way. Uh, so let's get to it. Today, we are joined by Construct Senior Fellow Eric Simmons, who comes to us from what, in, in his view, is the beer capital of the universe, Portland, Oregon. Eric is a senior fellow with Constructs. He has more than 30 years of experience as a systems and software engineer, consultant, and change agent, both in the public and private sector. Eric is internationally recognized for his expertise in areas such as agile transformation, software and systems life cycles, solution thinking, complex adaptive systems engineering, and requirements engineering. Beyond his work life, Eric is an accomplished organist with more than a dozen CD recordings. Don't believe me? Check out his YouTube channel. Welcome, my friend. Welcome to the machine. Thanks. And that's not just my opinion about Portland beer, but I'll stand for it. You know, we could have, that's a whole nother podcast. We or could three. Have whole covers. <laughs> Absolutely. So today we're going to be exploring one of the um, high value offerings that Constructs consultants perform on a pretty regular basis. And that's this idea of organizational assessments. Um, and we're going to explore that with three kind of main focus points today, kind of what are they, what are they, you know, why are they important and useful to businesses is the first topic we're going to hit. And and so, you know, I think what we should do is just kind of define terms here because sometimes this particular phrase has been uh, – has assumed a pejorative uh, among the consultancy space out there. And so what do we mean when we say an organizational assessment, Eric? Yeah, it's true that the assessment word has been kind of sullied in many places. What we mean by that is, is a series of activities over about two months. Uh, the, the total duration depends on the ability of a uh, an organization to schedule things and whether we do on-site interviews or remote, things like that, but normally one to two months. Uh, and we look very specifically at software engineering practices but not just that. It, depending on the, the, the organization and where it sits in its life and its evolution, we'll look at a bunch of other things, including the organizational structure, the architecture of the system, uh, the way people communicate, uh, all the way down to uh, whether or not teams can trust each other. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree with that sentiment. I mean, you like to talk about, in, in some cases, assessing trust and cultural issues in addition to technical issues, right? I certainly do, because, you know, when a team comes up and says, uh, we're having trouble with some practice, sometimes that's simply a matter of correcting the practice. But more often than not, there's more to it than a simple correction to a practice, because the correction itself won't stick if it's being made in an environment where it, it has no chance of success, right? If the, so if the culture is off in the deep end somewhere, or if nobody trusts each other, or if they're getting incentives from management to do exactly the opposite of the improved practice, then it's not going to stick. So we can't just look at technical practices and call it a day. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a really good example. I mean, I, I like to use the the phrase of a lens, right? That we like to look at the organization with a particular lens um, and, and and think about how that lens might interact with yeah. the, 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 the discovery of the of what actually might be on the ground. Yeah, it's a good term. And, and in fact, 
I, I like several lenses, um, just a couple, for example. Uh, I like to look at some of these things from the lens of culture, structure, and politics. Uh, and I also look at another lens that Daniel Pink certainly popularized, if not invented himself, in Autonomy, Mastery, and Purpose. Because there's a lot of motivation or or damage to motivation that, that comes from those lenses. And if, if we have the wrong environment in place, uh, those lenses will help us see that. And then we can make a correction to practices that actually works. Yeah, I think the, the autonomy, master, and purpose thing, we've hit that um, when Steve McConnell was on the podcast. Uh, we had a particular key principle from his book, More Effective Agile, that really refers to Pink's work. And, and mm-hmm. so there's a lot of, lot of linkage to that. Yeah, and there's a tie, too, to the uh, concept in More Effective Agile in the Kinevin framework uh, that comes from David Snowden. And uh, the, the notion here, each of these lenses I'm quoting has three elements to it. And those come basically after the triads in the sense-making method that Snowden does. When you ask somebody to rate the organization and place themselves in terms of people, process, technology, there is no right answer per se. So it isn't as simple as a strongly agree to strongly disagree question where somebody might be able to guess the correct answer in their mind or something. And and I've actually had several people uh, exclaim at the end of an interview that said, God, this is like therapy. And and maybe it is in some sense where people get to think differently about the organization across dimensions that undercut, underlie, or support everything that that goes on above. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, you, know, you, you kind of alluded to this, but when we talk about these particular kinds of engagements with organizations, everything about that particular engagement ends up being customized. I mean, we don't have existing templates we use to force fit people into a particular organization to a shortcut the work. We, you know, right. it's, it's really all done specifically to them, much the same as you would be as a as a medical professional diagnosing an individual case, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, that's one of the reasons I think that the term assessment has been rather sullied in the industry is that there are groups out there that have maybe four or five canned reports. And the assessment consists of figuring out which one of those is the closest fit so they can shoehorn you into it. And then they'll change the name on the uh, uh, the cover and put your logo on it and say, here, pay us. And right. they really haven't done any kind of deep assessment. It's just a, a first fit pattern match and they're done. Ours are custom from the goals at the beginning all the way to the format of the report at the end. And that's a lot more work, but... I can sleep at night knowing that we took a good, solid look at the organization as an organization. And we get, I think, far better recommendations from that than we would about saying, yeah, you look like this, so why don't you try that? Yeah, it's the old diagnosis at a distance kind of thing, right? You just exactly. don't want to do that, right? Exactly. I, it was, sometimes people say, just tell me what to do. And it's like, well, I can't. No more than a doctor would treat you over a telephone when they really need to get in and, and take a look at you before they can make a confident prescription. Uh, and, and to the degree that we want these recommendations to be specific and prescriptive and beneficial – uh, we need to get in there and see this stuff. And it can't be something that's just done as some first fit pattern match or something done in uh, a sort of general distant way. Absolutely. So, you know, you and I have been uh, witness to a number of these engagements over over time. And, and one of the things that I like to think about when I 
try and phrase this for the for folks listening to this podcast is that there are a lot of reasons why people ask for these particular engagements, right? I mean, it piques yeah. people's interests. You know, some people uh, in general, some people know something's wrong, right? They just, they, you know, a, a good manager or a lead might look at something and say, you know, something's wrong here. I'd like to some kind of validation from somebody outside this organization. Look in the box, tell us what's going on, right? right. What are some of the other, what are some of the other ways that people present themselves in terms of talking about that? Well, you know, I think that the reasons people come after assessments are probably as diverse as the organizations themselves. But that first category is a good one. Somebody says, I know something's wrong. And, you know, I've been on both sides of this because I, I spending 17 plus years at Intel. I know how frustrating it can be in a company of any size when you know something is wrong and you tell folks that something is wrong and they don't believe you because you're not the expert. And you have to go in and have somebody from outside come in who's written a few books and say the exact same thing just so you can <laughs> roll your eyes in the corner and say, can we move on now? And so, yeah, there is some of that. Uh, we know what's wrong and we need validation from outside. Other kind of categories, uh, people may not know what's wrong. They may just sense something is off. You know, Scrum has this in the sense of Scrum smells. There can be a smell going on. And somebody just says, you know, I don't like the look of this. Or we joke about the horror films and things that you never want to do in a horror film, like say, I'll be right back. And, and you just know <laughs> it's not going to end well. That's so right. There are people who are who are looking around and saying, why did all the crickets just stop in this meeting? You know, and something's going to burst through the door and eat them all anytime. So sometimes they know <laughs> something is wrong, but they don't know what it is. Uh, what else? Other times, maybe you've just thrown groups together because we've done a merger. Somebody got bought by somebody else and they didn't necessarily look at this in depth before they merged. And now they have to figure out what do we do with this? Yeah, um, I think that's that, that's a great that, that's a great thought. I mean, I, I we have seen that time and time again. One one organization had a particular flavor of agile, for example. Another one had was yeah. not doing that, and uh, you know you, they pit against each other. And the internal, sometimes the internal management is even at at odds with each other, trying to figure out well how do we get around this? We need to break the tie. And instead of the two of them going into a, into a you know winner takes all arm wrestling yeah. match, they call somebody from the outside to say, hey, you know, give us your best impression of, of what you think the, the go-forward state should be here. Exactly. Exactly. And and sometimes the uh, the problems run into that cultural layer, too, because when you put these two organizations together, especially if they've got a lot of history in and of themselves, when they collide, it's not usually a nice, clean fit, and something has to give in terms of decision-making or just how they view the world, what's right, what's good, and those dimensions of culture that become so important. Yeah, and I think, you know, to, to take that to an extreme, you even have that in a monoculture, right? You could have uh, a larger organization that has just grown over time and and just had a, a striation of the practices where you have some people doing things a certain way, some another. I mean, they might not all be reporting in the same organizational structure, but they may be building things that all roll up to one main product. And so you'd like sure. to kind of harmonize that, right? Yeah, it's kind of an organizational or cultural entropy because once you get above a certain number of people, you can't say you know everyone well. And once that happens, you get subcultures and different organizations, silos perhaps forming that go off and, and undergo some form of entropy where they end up in a different place than the rest. 
And sometimes that's a great source of innovation and, and evolution. Sometimes it creates a lot of friction. So orgs can seek that clarity and say how best to harness what's going on and get ourselves pointed in a common enough direction to make rapid forward progress. Yeah, I think that, that I mean, that, that, that we see that quite often. And, and you know, and, and particularly in working with larger organizations, that's when we're going to talk about this in a few minutes, but a little bit more mechanically how we do these kind of things. But that actually um, has has some bearing on on the number of interviews we do in the organization, et cetera. But we can we can touch on that in a second. The, the, the one other thing I was going to raise, um, and, and this is sort of a human nature thing, I think people people want to know that somebody else has their pain right so sometimes we get this 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 question where people come in and they they want a comparison to to you know how are they doing against other organizations like ours and the right. question might be phrased like you know you're in a unique position position to observe other people we don't get a chance to look at other people but you do how do we look against them right exactly and it's it might not be the fact you know even if they're 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 having some horrendous issues the fact that they hear somebody else has had the horrendous issues and, and there's a way out, right? That's a big deal for people to have that. that. That's true. There is comfort in knowing you're not alone. You know, it's, it's not just us. Yeah, uh, right? It just, you just want to know. Right? The comparison idea also comes from a different thing. If, if you look at the work of people like Gerd Gigerenzer and this notion of heuristics, and you get it in thinking fast, thinking slow as well in, in the popularized versions of this – this notion of a heuristic, uh, being able to compare yourself to somebody else can be a very good shortcut for making a, a difficult decision. Uh, heuristics like take the best or imitate the successful. Because if you're in an unfamiliar environment, you think, how do I act? What do I do? One of the simplest ways to make decisions is do what the successful people are doing. And I think a lot of this curiosity we hear from people about what are other successful companies doing are exactly that heuristic. They're just looking for a shortcut and saying, I want to do what the other successful people are doing. The trick with heuristics is they don't guarantee that you're going to be successful. So imitating the successful is a nice strategy, but it's no guarantee that you also will be successful with that. Absolutely. And, and by the way, the next heuristic after imitate the successful, if you can't tell who is successful, imitate the majority. Do what most people are doing. Right. And, and that's why nobody ever got fired for buying IBM 30, 40 years ago because everybody bought it. And, uh, well, don't blame me. Everybody did it. Right. So these heuristics have some value. And the comparison to best practices, everyone's curious about how they stack up. Uh, but I, I think we're also – not in the business of recommending that people just sort of emulate some narrow profile and try to define what uh, everyone should be. That's that's a much more individual thing. And, and that's one of the powers of this form of assessment. We're not just wedging people into patterns. Yeah. No, that's that, that's a great that's a great uh transition to this next topic and the the next uh key um focus that we're going to talk about today and we're, we're just going to drop down into the weeds a little bit here is is really uh, let's outline how we perform these engagements what do they look like and, and we're going to talk about that through 
through a couple different areas, uh, planning, information gathering, analysis, and the actual reporting process. And, and so, you know, I, I typically in, in, in my role as a sales director here at Constructs, I get involved early on with clients that, that come in and say, we want someone to help us. And, and very oftentimes they're a little bit surprised that my fir- first response to them or my first question back to them is, what's going on with your business? What's going on with the channel right now that's causing you to seek some help from the outside? And and it's sometimes it's surprising to me that that some clients might actually not have a quick answer for that. They start thinking, "Well, boy, that's really a good question. Here's the kind of things that I think are are really helping uh, or causing us to reach out to you." Right. So. Defining business goals is sort of the first step we do in the planning process, right? Yeah, it is. And you're right that a lot of people have not stopped to consider their broad goals. They they come because they have symptoms, just like you go to the, the doctor because you have some sort of a symptom that's driving you crazy uh, or causing you pain. So yeah, it is good to step back and, and you do it rather well to get these people to think in terms of much broader business goals. Because as, as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of cause lurking in things like culture and belief systems and trust. And so when somebody comes in and says, yeah, we keep having problems adopting and using Scrum effectively with new teams, fine, that's a symptom of something, but what? So the business goals are important there. And they also help focus the assessment because somebody comes in and says, "Um, I don't feel good. And that's an awfully broad kind of introduction. And we need much more focus for the assessment than that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, some of the classic things that we that we hear from people is is that, you know, in, in today's marketplace everybody's running, right? Run and running hard. There's competitors, there's uh, and they're continually driving you with your solutions to the marketplace to get better, to be more varied, to have more complexity, to have more to deliver more with with less effort. So, you know, the notion of improving time to market is something that we always hear people talk about is that they, you know they have a current cadence that they're doing something with and they just are looking for some ways to change that cadence right yeah yeah make it make it faster in response to competition time to market's been a force for gosh a couple of decades now as generation time from product to product solution to solution has, has switched or gone down and has switching costs have reduced. So people are no longer trapped in a system. Remember the days when you'd walk up to a a desktop PC in the morning and you'd boot it and then you'd load your enterprise application in about 90 seconds and you'd work in it all day until you shut the PC down and went home. And and nowadays that's not true. And, And the switching costs from brand X to brand Y, especially in a cloud era, are so low that, yeah, TTM, what have you done for me lately, becomes a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I think the, the, the corollary to that might be the notion of agility, right? And the, and the ability for someone in an organization to, to respond to a changing marketplace, right? You yes. get, you get lots of inbound requests for different industries or segments or things to support. And so trying to deliver this, the, to that broader marketplace with the same engine internally is a challenge. People need, need some thoughts about how to improve that ability, right? They do. And that's one of the reasons I think that agility has been so prevalent within software and now going beyond software into broader uh, products and solutions. 
Uh, I think that the, the overall environment of increasing complexity out there of various forms and this pressure for time to market, it, software saw it first. And the Agile movement was a very good response to that kind of complexity because the old ways of front end first aren't going to work well there. Uh, but yeah, more and more companies are now in that business. We've, we've been doing assessments with people who make physical things, right? Made of metal. We had one client say, look, we grind metal for a living. We don't understand this software thing. <laughs> and, and yeah. software wasn't just a part of their solution anymore. It had become the most valuable part. So folks who are used to a very front end first manufacturing and design process are being confronted with, with all of this. So assessments on those grounds are pretty common. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the big things that we hear from management is uh, this notion of predictability of project delivery, right? I mean, the, the the classic scheduler's nightmare of someone keep beating on someone. When am I going to get it? When am I going to get it? Right. Right. Is, and and your sales you folks know. want to be able to make promises to people because customers want these features. And and yeah. Right. So predictability is important because if you keep saying we're going to do it and, and then you don't, these days, again, with low switching costs and rapidly emerging alternatives, it doesn't take much to get somebody to fly to a competitor. Right. And related to that predictability thing is this, is improving visibility. You know, I mean, management, the old adage, management never likes to be surprised, right? You, if you continue yeah. to give them information and insight into what's happening, make things more visible in a dashboard kind of, um, uh, you know, a, a vision. Sure. That sure. certainly and helps them, right? I might go you one better there and say management doesn't mind surprises if they come out early. What's deadly are the late surprises. Right. And, and we see a lot of this, again, back to a cultural layer to this. If bad news is punished, if the messengers get shot and things like that in a culture, then you end up with people postponing or burying bad news until it just can't be avoided any longer. And then it's too late to do anything about it. Uh, so, yeah, improving visibility and control over projects. And that often involves making some changes to culture. Because if it's not okay to be visible at early status and to if it's not okay to experiment and fail, then you have a situation where you're just set up to promote late surprises that are going to be devastating. Right. And that's one of the cultural um, eye-openers for people who are adopting agile practices, right, is, is the yeah. you, you need to have that permission to fail. That's an important thing. As long as you learn something from the process and keep moving forward, that's a that's a culture that's, I think, uh, it, it's something that yeah. we find hard to, for some organizations to grasp. Yeah, and I've written about this in the value driven delivery space. That organizations often have a team that starts with what's easy because it feels good and it seems like they're making rapid forward progress. All the lights are green, and they're doing everything that's precedented and easy, and then. Eventually, they run out of that after some portion of the budget's been expended and the schedule's gone by. And then they start doing the hard stuff and you get that late surprise. So it's all about getting those things out early and ideally uh, having greater predictability with time. So you've got to get those bad things out early and make sure you've, you've made the right decisions there. Postponing them does does great hurt. But that's, that's we're, we're drifting from assessment for sure there, but... <laughs> it is one of the reasons people bring us in because there's a lot of that going on. People don't feel empowered uh, to to bring that information out early. And Agile has every means by which to do that with 
short iterations, uh, but it isn't happening. Right. So, you know, related to that, I think, is this idea that it, it, uh, to release at a faster cadence to improve time to market, you, some organizations um, clearly state in their business goals for assessment that they want to do those things, but not not sacrifice quality, right? Well, of course. Quality, quality is still a big issue for them, and, and, and even it, improving quality, right? Right. Most people would just not say anything about quality, assuming that it stays the same. The, the magic here is that if you focus on quality, you will get short time to market. You will get high customer uptake and low defect rates in the field. If you don't focus on quality, all those things go away. You're not going to be predictable. You're going to have really upset customers, et cetera, et cetera. So um, there's a false dichotomy between things like speed and quality. If you want speed, focus on quality. And that's another pretty common theme in these assessments. I, I think that's completely true. And I mean, I think you can maybe layer that under something called organizational efficiency and, and, you know, we talk a lot here at Constructs about this concept of rework. Um, and, you know, when an organization is looking for incremental bandwidth to continue to deliver higher, higher levels of, of business value out there, they don't, sometimes don't, they're not aware of how much rework goes on internally and whether it's, it's, it's true. You know, because it's intentional. Yeah. Yeah, you know, software exactly. defects aren't in the factory with a red line painted around them with signs that say, do not ship. Right. They're sitting in some database in, in bit storage. And right. so there again, we, we do work with some companies that are a more hardware oriented company that sort of understands the concept of rework, but they have a hard time mapping it to this software thing that isn't on a pallet in the factory. Right. Uh, and even a lot of software, you end up with people who are culturally permitted or incented to ignore rework and just focus on velocity. Uh, just go fast because our definition of done doesn't include things like, do we have to fix it later? Right. Because we don't test before we check in. Oh my gosh. You know, that's just, just a, a disaster waiting to happen when the things like that happen. I think that's true. Yeah. So, Steve, you know, Steve Taki has written eloquently on this in his books and papers. And, and the idea that on all of the assessments I've been on, when we ask people, do you measure rework? The answer is almost always no. Right. And I say, do you have any data you can show me that your percentage of schedule and budget spent on rework is under half? The answer is only once been anything but no. I, right. We've had one one client I can recall who measured rework at 38%, and I said, congratulations. The rest of them, I, I don't recall the last time anyone disputed it was at least 50%. Yeah, it's more typical now, of that level. Yeah. yeah, now we don't want 0% rework because then everybody is so afraid of creating rework that we make no forward progress. But 50%, 70 75%, as I commonly hear people estimate on these assessments, that seems ridiculous in the other direction. So there's got to be something in that 10, 15, 20% range that, that allows for innovation and experimentation, but doesn't become a fiduciary nightmare when you think about how many people are doing the equivalent of sitting in a corner with the lights off because you've got 50% rework. Right. I mean, we, we talked about this under the guise of technical debt the last uh, on the last podcast with Steve um, and and some of the the the, the, uh, the fall through discussions we had there were about intentional rework versus unintentional rework, right? Sure. There are, time, there are certainly times when when you choose as an organization to do something, knowing that that's going to you you're going to have to come back and revisit that, but you certainly don't want the rework to be there just because of stupid 
coding practices yeah. or 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 you know the the organization just shortcutting everything in a race to get the market that's not healthy and they don't understand i think a lot of organizations don't understand how much their bandwidth is consumed by people reworking stuff once they made those conscious decisions right because they're not measuring so yeah. one of the healthiest things yeah. organizations can do here as part of an assessment or not is classify some rework. You can even take samples. You don't have to do everything necessarily. Just get some measurements and classify the rework according to uh, uh, a trichotomy from healthcare around quality assurance. And look at this and say, how much of the rework that we're doing is frankly preventable? How much of it is potentially preventable? And how much of it is unpreventable? And right. what you're just describing of intentional rework is this, it's unpreventable. We're going to go and do this because it's, it's got other benefits that we, we're going to accept this one. The, the, the lean idea of necessary waste, whatever you want to do there. But I think a lot of organizations discover an alarming percentage of frankly preventable rework when they look at this and that can be eliminated. Right. So go off so, and eliminate your frankly preventable rework, minimize your potentially preventable rework and then create a process by which you can best handle the unpreventable rework. You know it's coming, so learn to work with it as well as you can. Absolutely. So so I think we've hit – we kind of hit this uh, planning aspect of it in terms of the initial business goals. And those are – we find those conversations to be rather illuminating. They're good for both sides because we get some insight into what the organization worries about at a business level. And then we kind of use that as a lens, right, to kind of right. observe the organization. So when someone is asking about time to market, then we, we look at the organization with that kind of uh, set of eyes in mind. Um, a focus, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So an another thing that we do in the planning process that that um, involves having to get deeper into the organization and get a better sense of what's going on is the notion of – of setting up individual interviews with with the team members, right? And we and we we um, do that either in in going on site to an organization or or recently we've been doing this stuff more virtually. Um, yeah. T talk about that interview selection process. What are we looking for? What 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 would be important to know, or who would be important to talk to in an organization to get a better feel for what's happening on the ground? Well, generally, we want a wide net within whatever bounds the overall goals of the assessment define. So obviously, since we're generally doing software-oriented stuff, we're going to get developers and we're going to get folks in QA and test. And if it's a agile organization using Scrum, we definitely want to talk to some POs and Scrum masters. But beyond that development team level, we also want to talk to management. And I'd like to talk to the people who are either the uh, perpetrators or victims of things for the development team, <laughs> folks like marketing right. and operations, uh, even, even sometimes people in HR and, and some of the legal environments. You never know. Sometimes the, the goals that an organization has take us into some pretty interesting places in the org. But we're going to focus on the people who create software and products and then look around at, at beyond the boundary as to who they serve and what they're what they're thought of by their customers and stakeholders inside and outside the org. Right. And then in some cases, the, we'll ask the organization for some recommendations as well, right? Because they might, they yeah. might actually have members on their team that they're, they're really interested in hearing from them. And, and again, maybe going back to your cultural comments, sometimes there's particular individuals or individuals in an organization that are a little nervous about, 
talking about things, but if they if you give them a safe place to uh, to correspond, yeah. right? We we can kind of surface some things from these. Maybe they're they're uh, low level thought leaders that have a lot to say about things, but have never been asked. Yes, right? and we, we do try to uh, make them comfortable in the interview. We guarantee confidentiality. Uh, there is no way that any of the information in raw notes ever gets shared back. Now, in a lot of organizations, to their credit, I've, I've had people say, it doesn't matter. You can quote me if you want. Great. And I'm glad those cultures are healthy enough that things like that offered in the spirit of continuous improvement can be broadly acceptable. But there certainly have been places where I think anonymity was necessary to get real ground truth. Uh, and we also do that in that online survey that we'll talk about shortly. We got a lot of open comments in there. And uh, you get to hear some pretty interesting things in those anonymous fields. Uh, most people are not just getting bitchy about things and, and being nasty. It's really done in a constructive way, but it's done in a very frank way. Sure. Well, let's let's hop into that because the next the next thing I was going to talk about in terms of this structured uh, set of practices that we do is this ocean, this notion of information gathering, right? And so. You know, the interviews are one thing. We also do, you know, we cast a little wider net in terms of an organizational survey. Talk talk a little bit about that, the self-assessment idea. Yeah, it does a couple of things. It gets more people involved and it gets a lot of subjects involved. So it's a nice way to get a picture of how the organization views itself. Uh, and generally, it only takes 30 to 45 minutes to fill this out for an individual, depending on how much they want to type in the open comments. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, we get sometimes hundreds of responses that we can go through. And, and that's where a lot of the work is on, on our side is that when you get that many comments, you've got to go through and do some coding and, and develop the themes that are coming out and, and see what is going on in people's minds there. Uh, but that kind of a survey is really valuable to us in figuring out what ground state is. Because if all I did was listen to the people who organized the survey and say, this is what we're doing, uh, experience shows they'd be they'd be inaccurate most of the time. Right, right. It's the uh, the difference between yes, we're doing agile to the organization, and then the team says, yeah, well, we don't do stand ups, we don't do retrospectives. Yeah. What we're doing agile, right? There's the policy manual, and then there's what actually happens on the floor, right? So everybody can say, yeah, this is the policy, but here's what really has to happen because this is broken, and we have to do it this way. Yeah, and, and you know one of the, one of the other things I think the the, the survey and self assessment thing can can help us with is that there are times when you know we have the interview set that we're going to do, and something gets surfaced out of the self assessment that says you know we didn't really talk about that portion of the organization. We need someone from that group that's going to be in that set of interviews, and so there's some iterative aspects to our assessment work where it's not always a linear process right straight through. We might actually yeah. curse a bit, right? Indeed. And and sometimes the, a topic will come up within the survey. Uh, I had one recently with effective meetings that came up in the survey that wasn't within the overall uh, business goals because the organization in that case, I think, was so close to the problem that it wasn't visible up front. But as they all started to individually respond, this this issue emerged pretty strongly. So, yeah, there is a two-way street there between the uh, the survey back to the uh, interview selections and, and what we look at, even perhaps influencing the goals. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and another another area that can be customized, I think, in the surveying process is this notion of, you know, maybe the organization has some difficult questions they want to ask the broader the broader um, environment, right? And they've been reluctant to do so, or they feel like they're not going to get answers back that are going to be candid enough. So we always offer that out to people, right? To say, hey, you know, if you want to include some specialized questions in here, could even be domain related where we're not really necessarily going to be the expert on that, but they want to ask the question during the process of surveying. Yeah, for sure. And, And we have several people who've taken that opportunity. Yeah. Absolutely. So another area that we, that we, in terms of preparation for this, um, when we're trying to assess the organization before we go on, the, on, on into the interviewing process is this notion of getting a feel for what does the daily work look like? Give us, give us some information about that, like, you know, some artifacts of the work that's being produced on a daily basis, just to get a feel for the, the again, for the ground state. Tell us a little bit about what that looks like. Yeah, we look at uh, a wide array of, of artifacts, uh, everything from product documentation to things like the backlog to uh, various other essence test plans, source code, all kinds of stuff, standards. Because uh, what we're after is to figure out what really works in practice. Because again, we can have aspirational, yeah, we always do this, and the documents need to be at this level by this date. But those aspirations don't always hold up in real life. Yeah, and and I think it's really uh, sometimes we've been pleasantly surprised by the the amount of information that that some of the clients give to us. Some of us sometimes we've been really surprised that they can't produce a lot. And both of the both ends of the spectrum are are quite telling in terms of how we might approach the conversation, right? It's true, and and people can be uncomfortable with either too little or too much. We get a lot of folks in regulated industries who are sort of uh, suffering under historical burden of, of how much uh, documentation they have produced in the past. And they would like to be a little faster and a little more agile. And that's an entirely different situation than somebody who's trying to mature off of a startup phase into something larger and a bit more disciplined, looking for how to expand what they're putting down. Right. I mean, you have that. I think there's a, there's a there's kind of a natural occurrence in organizations that have been together for a long time, and they grow, and and there are layers and layers of things that get added to the organization, and and at the end of the day, there's not a whole lot of them that tr- contribute to business value downstream, and so right. having a periodic. Uh, way to kind of view that in an assessment context that says, you know, are these things really needed anymore? Why are we doing this stuff? Is there a different way to think about how we might arrive at the same at the same output, but not have that burden? That's for sure. Us, you know, yeah, for sure. I think that's something that any organization should be doing on a reasonably frequent basis: is looking at what it writes down and saying, who reads this, and why does this content meet the needs of the people who will use it to do their jobs? Right. Absolutely. I mean, that's the end of the day. That's what you're asking for. So, you know, as part of the the, you know, the last phase of the of the information gathering thing is certainly the interview process, right? And so, um, we do those both either on site, you know, person to person, sitting in a room with eyeballs on somebody, versus you know, um, you've got experiences doing this thing virtually, international, yeah. and 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 connecting. And so, tell tell us a little bit about about. That process, uh, how do you make people feel comfortable? What's your overall approach to the interview process? 
Yeah, you're right. On-site or virtual, especially nowadays with Save the Planet and, and uh, scary viruses, I think virtual is going to become even more frequent. And given the improvement in video conferencing, there nothing will beat in the room with someone in terms of reading body language and communication bandwidth. But when you look at the cost of that and some of the other advantages to the virtual, besides just holding costs down and, and not creating CO2, there are some other flexible advantages for scheduling and things there too. Uh, so both of those are feasible. And I think we do pretty well with the video conferencing now for reading body language and creating an environment where there's enough trust and communication. One of the key elements, though, is that in these interviews, even though we have goals, which everybody knows, we don't hide the goals from anyone, and, and we have these areas of concern, let's say, what we don't do is walk into the interview with a list of 31 questions that we have created and put in the order we think is important. Instead, I use a much more ethnographically informed approach where I take a prompt of a very general nature and, and, and ask the interviewee, you know, uh, how do you feel about this or area? And is that the area you would have picked? Or uh, it lets them go off into where they think the emphasis needs to be rather than just answering 31 questions in the order we impose them. Right. And I, I find that is incredibly enlightening. The number of topics that have come out of that uh, open door approach rather than take a test I would never do anything except that because we've heard some startling things that didn't come out in the survey that didn't come out in the planning. It's Oh, very interesting. You know, so I, I, my poker face is good and I don't act surprised, but I take copious notes from all this. And at the end of this, you realize you've got a tremendous picture of what really matters to people. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, in addition to that, I don't, I don't want to say that we completely ignore the, the survey information and the information we get from, from management. I think we want to validate in some cases what we what exactly we think we think we've assimilated. Right. So, you know, having them kind of do an open, you know, here you're on the therapy couch. Tell me what hurts. Yeah. And tell me what your mother did to you, you know. Right. Because so. these people have taken the survey. It's in their minds. So they already have the survey sort of biasing them into the areas of concern that we're after. So I don't think you need to be all that specific. I've never, I've never had uh, a situation where somebody went into a completely irrelevant or inappropriate domain right. in, in the, in the interview. So that makes sense. And then, you know, at, at the, sometimes in the interview process, we have a, you know, that's a part of the sequence that we go through and, you know, prior to doing the analysis or maybe even going into the analysis, which we're going to talk about next, um, there may be some things where we say, you know what, I think we missed something. There's a person we didn't talk to that might have more data. So even the notion of things like follow-up calls and emails just to amplify or clarify things is a good thing to do as part of the practice, right? Sure. And and often at the end of one hour, people aren't done, um, which is pretty common to have somebody say, can I have a little more time and sure we'll, we'll accommodate that. And sometimes they'll wake up two days later and think, Oh, I should have said, uh, and they'll email or, or want a second call that way. And yeah, those follow-ups are uh, pretty common and they're always useful. So, so in terms of cycle time, you know, we didn't talk about uh, maybe the, the meta picture here, but, but, you know, 
what is the duration of an assessment in terms of time? We we're we're say that we've gone through this process of describing the business goals and we've gotten the interview set up and we've collected all this data. How far into this are we typically? What's what's this? What, what is an elapsed time? Well, from a calendar perspective, it can be anywhere from a month to a bit less than that, and it depends on whether this is on site or virtual. Mm-hmm. What we find is that the virtual assessments get started faster because if you think about the logistics of the site visit where we want to schedule 14 one-hour interviews back-to-back over two days, it's difficult to do that. And it takes time to get the email sent around and to get people signed up for just the right slots and to arrange travel if need be to the home site or wherever we're visiting. Or Um, multiple sites, right? Or multiple sites, right? So all of those logistics can mean that the on-site assessment can take a little longer in lead time Uh, The virtual assessments, we can put a spreadsheet out there with a bunch of available times in a shared location and let people sign up for it. We kick out uh, video conference meetings and we can get started within days of the kickoff talking to people. So generally, you know, we're three to seven weeks into this with an average of maybe a month. Okay. Well, that's helpful. And, and, you know, we're at the end of this information gathering uh, process, you know, we, we, we sort of start bridging into the analysis portion of this. And so we, we have, we, again, I mentioned before, we, we, we tend to adopt an agile practice uh, in how we approach these particular assessments. And so the analysis is iterative, right? right. We'll, we'll tend to want to do things um, that we can get in that information uh, kind of together in a, in a, in a rough form and, and sort of tell the client, you know, the sponsors, this is kind of the direction we're heading Right, and just to tip the hand a little bit and say this is kind of where we're seeing some things happen. So we we do that by looking at at sort of initial strengths and weaknesses. Right, that's you know the, again against this lens of business goals. Exactly. What did we see? What did they tell us? And and can we correlate them? Um, right. And, and and we talked earlier about why do people do the assessments? And and sometimes people have a really good idea of what's wrong. Um, sometimes that idea is accurate. Sometimes it's not. So, so occasionally strengths and weaknesses come out to be a bit of a surprise to some folks who were driving the assessment. It doesn't always go the way they thought or anticipated it might. Mm-hmm. So one of my jokes here is that uh, people, people often come to us and say, my leg hurts. I think I should take an aspirin. And we go off and do the assessment looking at leg pain and come back and say, yeah, we we see why your leg hurts and why you want to take an aspirin. That's good. While you're at it, you may want to shoot the alligator. <laughs> exactly. Because exactly. there's a reason your leg hurts. And, and sadly, you didn't quite see that. So uh, you, you bring the alligator to light and says, oh, there's an alligator on my leg. Maybe I should shoot it. Right, right. So the, the, the strengths and weaknesses workup is really, you know, it's uh, – I wouldn't say it's a sweetener kind of stuff. You're not trying to be – be uh, be pleasant to the client. You just kind of say, you know, given our history of working with organizations, um, these are things that we think you guys are doing really well. Here's a, here's yeah, a bunch of things, right? Yeah, that's important because an assessment right? can't be weakness-based, right? I remember, yeah. I remember annual reviews at a certain company, I won't name, where in my early years, in the first five minutes, they'd say, here's what you did well. And then they'd spend 55 minutes berating you for not being everything you weren't. Right. Rather than saying, let's focus on what you're really good at and make you even better. 
So yes, those strengths are important in this. Yeah, the recommendations and all the rest of that are also of primary concern, but we can't overlook the strengths the organization has because those are going to be important along the pathway to even better performance. Well, you, you bridged into that next, the next um, idea, which is this notion of some preliminary recommendations, right? We work up, we work up the strength and weaknesses things. We get some idea of, of, you know, against business goals. Um, right. This, or, this organization's got to, got to do some things differently. Here's some thoughts, right? Right. Natural flow because the recommendations don't come out of thin air. Uh, so absolutely. And why iterative? Because we know organizational history and culture could make certain things, uh, certain phrasings. All I have to do is use the wrong phrasing and it's going to send people off in the, in the wrong direction and maybe completely scuttle a good recommendation just because it's worded in a way that the culture doesn't tolerate or can't understand. So the iterative nature of this allows us to go back and forth and make sure in our brief two-month encounter with this culture, we're not saying something in a way that is, is ineffective. Yeah, or or even say we make some comment and they and they say, well, you didn't talk to this particular person. You should probably go right. back and talk about because we are doing some of that. It just isn't visible to you from what you saw, or you know, right? Like and, that, and right? yeah, sometimes somebody says, "I'm surprised you didn't say X," and and sometimes we didn't say X because we are taking this limited focus look. And if we had more time and and more depth, we would have discovered X. So sure, that iterative thing is also just a sort of a a first level check on did we miss anything important just because of who we interviewed and and what they happened to talk about on the day. Totally. So so when we structure the the recommendations, we we are generally going to do that in terms of things that are consumable by the by the client in a certain time frame right it's like sometimes we, there's some obvious things right they're just low-hanging rotting fruit on the ground boy you guys yeah should, I, I like the rotting fruit rotting on the ground it's not just low-hanging fruit it's actually <laughs> rotting on the ground if you don't eat it today it's, it's going to stink yeah so, absolutely yeah uh certainly we want to time bias the recommendations so that we get a lot of bang for the buck right away uh and, and there's another safety reason for that. Organizations change. And if all the recommendations are four years in duration, by the time people are two years in, it's going to be a very different world. So we need to emphasize the near term and what can be, what can be done there. Right. So, you know, big bang, you know, like things that with a lot of, you know, high level return for a small amount of investment or into into a category of short term recommendations. And those are typically things that an organization should be able to do within 60, 90, 120 days, right? Something like that. Exactly. Typically. I I like the big R on little I. What are the things that really do provide a disproportionate return on investment? Right. And they, they, they tend to be also, I think we, we priority weight them in terms of the most urgent and important items too. So those are things that people need to fix. If you're against the lens of the business goals that the client has articulated, these are the things right. that you really need to get on right now. Well, yeah. And, and frankly, this has all the complexity and nuance of managing a backlog for anything else. There, there are the, the factors of importance and urgency and there's sequential uh, dependencies and yeah, so this is that's another reason this is a nice iterative process because right. you could wish to do things in a certain order and do certain things within thirty or sixty days. The organization may come back and say, "Brilliant idea, but clearly infeasible." Yeah, absolutely, and and you know there, uh, like we find so many times, there are some complex issues that build on each other, right? So, yeah, um, one of the things I think that we have talked about a lot over over the years with all of our clients is uh, the notion of the ability of an or any organization to absorb change. 
Yeah, there's a paper right. towel metaphor, right? And the which paper towel can absorb the most change. And and you can do things to improve an organization's ability to absorb change, but every organization has this intrinsic limit beyond which people just get paralyzed or their eyes glaze over or they they run away in fear. So we have to to pace the change according to let's keep the trains running on time and all those other metaphors. Sure. I mean, you know, the, the longer term items are dependent upon uh, some shorter term items. So you, you can't, you have to sequence them because they, they have yeah. things that are happening downstream. Um, sometimes, you know, organizational change has to occur and boy, that's not, that's not, not a short term thing, right? Right. Changing organizations, especially in large orgs can take months to prepare for. Uh, and, and of course, changing culture can take even longer than that because culture just is what it is, right? It's, it's not a simple thing to change. Yeah. I mean, this, this thing, these outputs will run the gamut between, you know, tactical kinds of things that people need to do if they're not doing retrospectives, for example, or things like that versus strategic things that, that, that the organization setting direction has been pretty poor. And so sometimes that cultural thing that gets surfaced in the interviews that, you know, management doesn't tell us what the heck's going on. Yeah. Those are those are changes that an organization not, needs to do from a strategic standpoint moving forward is to continue to keep people involved in the business and making them aware of what the business is doing. And that it's surprising to me in my years of working with organizations how often that comes up as a as a, a problem to uh, that, that that people just don't have the connectivity to the business, the buy-in, right? Yeah, or they don't have a, a consistent view of strategy and, and all of that. Yeah, that, those are common organizational issues. Yeah. So the last thing I wanted to touch about in the in the in the mechanical aspects of what we're doing is just the notion of the presentation of findings, right? Because that's you know the whole goal of this whole thing is to come back to the to the client with this report in some format, right? So tell me a little bit about that process. How do you think about that, and what's what's important to you in terms of setting that up? Well, we have a we do have a template for the order in which these topics get presented from the strengths and weaknesses down to the uh, recommendations and, and etc. Uh, we always start with the short term recommendations and move on from there. So there is that to work from. But after that, because all of these are custom, uh, there's a lot of work to do to work to uh, prepare this. And that again is done iteratively. I already mentioned the need to frame things like strengths, weaknesses, and recommendations in the language and um, uh, conceptual framework that the organization itself will understand and be able to act upon. Uh, we also have to make sure that the report and its recommendations reflect all the organization's realities and, and so whatever opportunities they bring to light, like, oh yeah, and by the way, we are planning to do a reorganization six months from now anyway. So we need to know those sorts of things as we write the report. Uh, so it can be a presentation. It can be a Word doc. I tend to use Word to get very specific in the recommendations. Sometimes a group will prefer a presentation so that they can just go off and show it to lots of people. Uh, whatever the client prefers is fine with me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think those are um – you know the, the the choice is up to the client. We for years we did these big, heavyweight, long seventy, eighty page reports that we would give to um, the senior management, and three of them would read half of it. Yeah, yeah, right. it's the TLDR generation, right? It's right. I, I'm not going to read any more than uh, twenty two seconds. 
Right. So, so some of the more recent ones have been more involved in very focused um, presentations where, where people just are looking for the bottom line and more of the information is transferred verbally in the report out structure, right? Whether we do that on site or whether we do that virtually as well. Exactly. And whether or not people choose to bring us in for an action planning workshop after the assessment, the assessment can end with the presentation of findings done, fine, go off and, and do your work. And sometimes very large, mature organizations that have groups specifically dedicated internally to making these things true will just go from there. Uh, but often we're called in after this to do a day or two as a workshop to say, all right, we buy the, we buy the recommendations. Now what? How do we do this? Let's get tactical. So some of the length that might have shown up in an earlier assessment report can be shunted to uh, the planning workshop and where people can get into the, the background at great depth and tactical steps for what to do next. That makes total sense. So that, that's going to bring us to the last focus area that we're going to talk about today, which is really the results, right? And, and that's really what this is all about. So um, everything that we do in these assessments, everything that we, we talk about, it's very highly specific to the client in question. They're very customized, very targeted. But so in terms of giving some like sample exa examples, it's not a whole lot we can share that's specific, but we can do some general um sort of general conversation about some of the things. So let tell me something like in a technical sense, something that you would maybe surface uh, after looking at an organization. Give me an example of that. Yeah, these tend to be some of the quick hitters. Uh, it's nice when you run into uh, an issue where the cultural support is there and management wants to do it well. And the only gap is a technical sort of shortcoming in a practice. Uh, let's see, a good example might be coming away from a, uh, an assessment where a, a company says we're doing Scrum, but then when you get in and go through the artifact reviews and the surveys and the interviews, you realize, well, they're really not. They've taken a cafeteria approach. It's very uneven. It's partial. The, there's role confusion. Various things like this come up pretty frequently. And, in the sense that everybody from management on down wants to be doing Scrum and they're just not being very effective at it, it's a relatively simple fix to recommend something like a Scrum tune-up or some baseline training to get everybody on the same page for what Scrum really is, how to do its practices well, and then what this organization's approach should be universally to get started. Right. I mean, it makes total sense. Give me, give me an example of something... Um, at the organizational level that you might uncover or talk about, right? Well, there have been several interesting ones lately. I, I mentioned earlier, a lot of companies that are not software companies traditionally are being all but forced to become proficient at having software-based ingredients in their solution. Sometimes those new software ingredients become the most profitable, most important ingredient in their traditional solution. So how to organize and communicate in such organizations, because we've got decision-making and power and authority used to be focused in the hardware component world. But now these upstart software people are in here. I don't understand what it is they do. They use, they use <laughs> funny people. words. Those yeah. people, they talk really strangely. <laughs> um, and they eat a lot of pizza. 
<laughs> and you eat a lot of everything and they drink a lot of yeah it's the it's the coffee and alcohol cycle that's right, right. A, exactly so there there can be a lot of things for how to work within the organizational structure that now includes software or organizations may be expanding acquisitions or or just organic growth and now they've got multiple sites and larger teams uh, or perhaps they're in the midst of some form of agile transformation and the Agile boundary, which you can read about in, in Steve's book, More Effective Agile, this notion of the part of the organization that's inside the Agile boundary and working that way already, like your scrum teams, and the part that's outside the Agile boundary. Uh, maybe you've got sales and marketing that's still working in a more traditional sequential way. And uh, the recommendations may be, let's move the Agile boundary in some way that brings some or all of a new function or department inside of it so that we get better overall value throughput and uh, time to market gets reduced, all those good things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Agile boundary is a great, great subject. And we, you know, maybe we can we can uh, put that on the table for a, a longer dive at another, at another time. But I think, you know, you have a lot of things to say about that. And it's an important aspect yeah. of, of organizational structure too. So Yeah, in terms of transformation, it was one of the most powerful concepts that uh, I used in my in my former career back at Intel was this notion that uh, we were bringing agile software into a company that was a powerful manufacturing uh, entity and had a long history of that manufacturing genetic uh, makeup. So it was it was very much a notion of moving the boundary uh, hand over hand into places where it supported better software development. Absolutely. It's okay, Mr. Producer, put a note on the board. We'll add that to our, our Kanban board. Um, give, give me something, give me a, another recommendation that you might think about doing that might have something to do with culture. You know, give me, give me a cultural kind of an idea that you might serve. Yeah. These get nuanced. And, and of course, I want to be careful here because they are often so specific that if I, if I say too many words, I'm likely to call out uh, a little too much. Right. Um, and I don't want to do that. So now a lot of people who are listening probably know that OKRs have become very popular these days, especially among management as this way to make everything better. We see a lot of need within the space people are trying to affect with OKRs, generally getting more quantitative in the way they specify a product in terms of success and objectively measuring where are we. Mm-hmm. The predictability thing you mentioned early on is one of the goals, right? We get a lot of people who say we need to be more predictable. And then uh, a cultural aspect of predictability is a pretty frequent result of that in the recommendations for, all right, we need to create a culture that supports predictability in terms of being able to quantitatively define success and failure and very objectively say, this is what we're going to do. And it helps with the alignment you talked about, where people don't understand a strategy and start pulling in the wrong directions because the strategy is specified vaguely or qualitatively and and folks misinterpret the true intent. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good example, I think. Um, and, and trust is another one. There's a lot of people with size or distance or the new guys being software again. There's a lot of issues with trust out there. So we often end up doing recommendations on tactical things to improve trust across groups, things like right. social network stimulation and, and other ways of cross-pollinating groups and sort of breaking down that us versus them mentality, even if you preserve silos. Uh, as various smart people are, are writing now, silos aren't, aren't always bad. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I think this this universal uh, goal of eliminate all silos is probably a huge mistake. But uh, we have to be able to work effectively with the silos that we have and, and deal with the identification that comes with that. And me versus you and us versus them gets unhealthy in, in various aspects. So working in trust in the organization, even while recognizing team identity and all the rest of that, that's another very common and uh, nuanced way to look at the recommendations. Absolutely. I mean, I think we can rattle on forever about a lot of the stuff that we've seen. There's all kinds of things you've done around requirements and management practices and organizational structure alignment and things of that nature. But I think I think at this point, we are going to have to call this a wrap, right, Mr. Producer? I think we're, we're at the edge of our time. We actually are way over our edge of time. But, you know, this is a topic I think that both you and I, Eric, really feel pretty passionate about. It delivers a lot of value to the clients we work with. And so I think it's yeah. – I, I want to thank you for bringing your wisdom and your insight to a really important topic. And I think we'll have you back again, you know, hopefully for another chat. We talked a little bit about maybe the Agile Boundary being a, a, a one. Uh, certainly you have a lot to say about the notion of metrics and uh, objectively measuring success and failure. That's another topic we might do. But we might even come back and talk about hazy IPAs, right? You might, or in my case, fruit sours. Yeah, more, <laughs> more sour, more better, baby. Awesome. Awesome. That sounds good. Anytime there's beer involved, I'm, I'm on the table. So thank you, yeah, again, and sir. If, if, if someone listening to this has an idea for where they want to hear more, then I'm always up for that, right? Uh, we can speculate and we can throw stuff out here. But, you know, listeners, uh, why don't you tell us what you want to hear next? Absolutely. Anyway, I think that's it for today. Be sure to tune in again for another episode of Inspect and Adapt, the Constructs podcast. Until then, this has been Mark Griffin as your host. Liz Ostaszewski has been our audio engineer, and Devin Musgrave today is our producer. Have a great next sprint. If you enjoyed this episode and you have comments or would like to talk with one of our practitioners, Reach out via email using comments at constructs.com. Again, that's comments at constructs.com. We'd love to hear from you.